0: Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. Don't clap yet. You have no idea how pent up I am. I have so many things to say, so many things I need to tell you. And uh, your, your ham that's in the oven is going to burn today. I'm just I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, uh, I think you won't like me by the end of the service, some of you, because I want to, from my heart of hearts, challenge you in some very real things today. We are uh, living in, of course, unprecedented times, and you hear that so much that I'm sure it's becoming cliche, but the truth is uh, we, we, from the earthly perspective, are absolutely living in unprecedented times, yet, yet there is nothing new under the sun. And um, it, it feels like with all the stuff going on in our world, um, <laughs> that the opportunity is actually not to say something. At times. Um, And I think because it feels like we're not supposed to say anything for the sake of political correctness, I think we as followers of Jesus sometimes begin to live in the reality of effective silence. And I think that's a good thing for the record. Uh, But I think it's important that that pastors specifically address a few issues. And so over the next couple of times that I'm going to be speaking with you, we're going to address a few issues. And the title of today's message is The Signs of the Times. Now, before you deep theologians get too far gone with your eschatology right now, we're not talking about end times today, just to be clear. Um, It's not going to be in the way that you think. And so let us start with prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, God, I trust That you say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and so is every person in this room. And so, Father, today we rest in the identity that you have given us as your sons and daughters, as followers of Jesus, the bride of Christ. Lord, I pray that as your Holy Spirit speaks into our lives today, we would be changed in your presence. That we would have a road to Emmaus encounter with you. That we would have a road to Damascus encounter with you. That we would have a standing there watching Christ be crucified encounter with you today, God. Holy Spirit... Would you enrich our lives by the ministry of your word? And we pray, Father in heaven, help us to know what to do. Amen. All right. Uh, if you got your Bible this morning, let's start with First 1 Chronicles 12.32. I'm going to read you from the New Living Translation, and this is what it says. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Now, those of you who uh, sit with us in men's prayer, you will have heard me literally pray this prayer. God, anoint us like the sons of Issachar so that we can see the times and know what our church should do with what's going on. Civil rest and the use of propaganda is not a new thing. These are not new tools under the sun. They have been used for thousands of years. And I want you to think back to ancient Egypt historical fact. The ancient Egyptians, that one generation would tear down the, uh, the pyramid or the, the Sphinx or whatever. They would tear down the monuments of the previous generation so that their generation would look better. Now, I'm just going to leave that there and let it sink in for a moment with you. I wrote in my notes, pause for connective effect. I'm actually pretty sure the Babylonians did the same thing. The Amalekites, the Moabites, and even the Israelites at times did this sort of thing. Well, tear down the monuments because it makes us look better. Virtue signaling is not a new thing, church. I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day were the ultimate virtue signalers, yet Jesus called them the biggest hypocrites that were around in that day. It's going to be a little fiery, just... Let me warn you. Get a cup of water if you need to. It's really hard. I bring it up because it's really hard to know what to do with all of the information we're taking. in. did you know in seven days, the average North American takes in enough information from the Internet to crash your laptop? Like, if you tried to put that all through that machine at one time, you would literally make smoke come out of all the little holes in the keyboard. You would crash it. You would burn it. When we are online, we are subjecting ourselves to one image per second on average, which means it can be a lot more than that. And here's the thing. It is senseless. We are simply consuming information. We are not actually digesting it. This is a problem, especially when it leaks into your spiritual walk. When you become a consumer of God's word, you're what the book of James called someone who looks in a mirror and immediately goes away forgetting what they look like. You are not an effectual hearer or doer of God's word. So we can't get like this. We can't succumb to the norm in our society today. It can be really hard for us to understand the right thing to do. And so as a result, I pray all the time, God, help us to know what to do. Lord, bless us, anoint us like the sons of Issachar and all their kinsmen so that we can know the right thing to do and do it. It's tempting to justify the rationale and behavior of other people in the world today. Some of you are tempted to rationalize and justify Donald Trump. Some of you are tempted to rationalize and justify BLM. Some of you are, of you are even rationalizing and defending Justin Trudeau. God bless our leader. <laughs> but I'm serious. Lord, please turn his heart to you. Bless him. Cause him to know that you are, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's tempting to make all these justifications and all these arguments, but I want to say something very simple to you this morning. You are responsible for you. And frankly, I'm very concerned that the church, especially in North America today, is spending so much time justifying beliefs and what others are doing or not doing that they are not even holding themselves accountable or listening to the Holy Spirit anymore. That's why there's so much hate in everything you read In social media. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord actually takes on a whole new meaning in this day and age, doesn't it? What are you willing to lose for serving the Lord today? We will all face some kind of loss, whether it be as simple as friendships or something much, much worse. But there is a deeper meaning in this present mess of humanity. And while the world screams it's us or them, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, it is Jesus or nothing. The world screams it's us or them. You're either for us or against us. But the cry of the one who follows Jesus really is, at the end of the day, give me Jesus or give me nothing at all. Jesus or nothing is what it really has to be about in days like this because he is the only spiritual leader. Get this. Jesus is the only spiritual leader who said this. Let's go ahead and put it up. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's Jesus or nothing because he has overcome the world. And he's the only spiritual leader to have ever made that claim. I'm not too sure if you're historically aware of that fact. But Buddha didn't say it. Muhammad didn't say it. Jesus of Nazareth is the only one who said, hey, in this world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid because I have overcome the world. The same world that we are seeing right now burning down their own cities, the same world that we see perpetuating racism, the same world that we see molesting children, the same world that we see human trafficking, the same world that we see consuming information in a way that does not honor or glorify the one who created us, that same world he has already overcome. This is a world that is so broken that we have Christians willing to march for BLM, but they pay no mind to the thousands of Christians in the last several months who have been murdered in Nigeria for simply choosing to follow Jesus. Did you even know that? Or do you only watch CNN? CNN. the CBC, because they're not telling us what's happening in the kingdom of God. So let me give you a step in the right direction this morning. Stop paying attention to your social feed and start paying attention to what is going on in this world through the eyes of Jesus. Start paying attention to what's going on in this world through the perspective that the kingdom of heaven is already among us. What a bunch of crap on the outside. The peripheral peripheral is full of garbage. For those of us who are walking like Jesus, it is Jesus or it is nothing at all. Take heart. I have overcome the world. It doesn't matter what your eschatology is. Eschatology, by the way, if you don't know, is the study of the end times. Jesus still is who he says he is. I was a little new for you. Jesus is who he says he is. Bye. No matter what's happening around us. I remember having a friendly debate with someone at one point, and it was whether or not we were in the millennial reign of Jesus or not, which would be amillennialism, as opposed to pre-, mid-, or post-tribulation eschatology. And uh, he, he, so here's what he said at one point. If this is the millennial reign of Christ, i got to say, Jesus, or it looks like Jesus is doing a pretty poor job. Well, that's a fair point. I'm wise enough now. This was quite a few years ago. I'm wise enough now to realize that the Bible also says that we are the ones who rule and reign with Christ. And if that's the case, maybe a little bit of this is our fault. Huh. Well, Pastor, fortunately for me, I'm not a non millennial. I don't believe that. I am a pre mid post trib Christian. Well, in that case, you need to be reminded that you walk in the fullness of the authority of Christ because he said all authority has been given to him and he has given authority to us. So what's our problem? What's what's our problem? I'd like to unburden the conversation for you because that is the truth either way. We are to walk in His authority in this world, whether winning or losing, whether waking or sleeping, laughing or crying. We are to be walking in the identity and the authority of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the core. This brings us to where we can start understanding the times and what we need to do. The book of Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 31, we're going to read them together. And this is the Apostle Paul coming to Mars Hill, where they are having a discussion about which God, what God. I imagine it was the place for people to gather to talk religion. So today it could, it it might be a coffee shop or a or a social media chat. I don't know. But this is why they said, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. We talk about that here often. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself uh, gives to all people life and breath and all things. Amen? Come on. And he made from, from one man every nation of mankind... And he made from one man, in other words, every race, every creed, every tribe, every tongue. Come on, somebody say amen. He made from one man, all nations, to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live And move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then children of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Really? Wait, let me just read it again because I'm, I'm, I'm in this moment worried about our church. Are we afraid of this? Are, are you afraid that God said this? Let me read it to you again. Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that in his act of obedience to the Heavenly Father, he bore our sin and shame to the cross, he took it down to hell, he wrestled the keys of sin and death away from it, and he brought them back as the crown champion, the victor, the everlasting, the eternal king over sin and death. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, totally one with the Father, offering prayer and petition for us that we may be one like he and the Father are one. You see, we preach Christ crucified and nothing else. Followers of Jesus should not be preaching morality. First of all, because it often makes us hypocrites. But more importantly, it's because God never called us to morality. He called us to be bearers of the image of Jesus. For we preach Christ crucified. The Bible goes on to say, For where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom... Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified. Now, I know some of you are going, but wait a second, Pastor Trev. I don't preach. I can't preach. That's fine. No pressure here. Then live Christ crucified. Then live Christ crucified. Okay, like how often? Like all the time. I, did I, I posted this meme a while back where Jesus, cartoon Jesus is sitting with cartoon guy. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And the cartoon guy looks at him like, what, you mean like on Facebook, on Twitter? And Jesus very kindly looks at him and says, I'm going to start at the beginning. You tell me where I lose you. Okay? They, guys, they, they're, they're, there is no fence to sit on here. If you don't feel like you can preach Christ crucified, I invite you to live Christ crucified. And you know why that works? Because in humanity, 90% of our communication is nonverbal anyways. 90% of what people get from you is not from your words anyways. And oh, snap, maybe that's why. I just figured it out. Did you? The whole reason it's taken so long. because we love with empty words. We love with simple gestures. We love with government relief programs, but they are empty promises. There is no life of Christ in them. We are called to preach Christ crucified, so live Christ crucified to everyone around you. Let me break it down for you. If Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1.5 and Hebrews 1.3, if he is the image of the invisible God, if he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, then who do you see when you look in the mirror? Yeah, I did it. I said that. Who are we? Who are we when we look in the mirror, little Christs? Little Christs who don't reflect Jesus. Mahatma Gandhi said, The problem with you Christians is you don't look very much like your Christ. Now, you might in the back of your mind be trying to figure out where I'm sitting today in the political spectrum. Good luck. Because I don't care about the political spectrum. Either the kingdom of heaven is among us or it's not. Either we are contending to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in the realized, the living presence of God, or we are not. And there's no fence. It is one or it is the other, my friends. Can you understand this, please, for me? Please, please, please understand this. Your light affects the people closest to you first. Have you ever noticed that in the dark when you light up a flashlight? What's the first thing to become illuminated by your light? Somebody, come on, say it. Participate with me, please. The closest thing to the light is the first thing that becomes illuminated by the light. Yet I fear that we have people running around the world in social media trying to change something 6,000, 3,000, 12,000 miles away. But we walk by a Samaritan on the road who's right next door. Guys, our light affects those nearest to us first, not those farthest away. So stop trying to change the world a thousand miles away and start looking to the need of the person nearest you. Start looking to the person at work who's going through hell, who's living in hell because their family is falling apart. That is your mission field. That is who you're called to. That is who Jesus wants you to love. But Lord, I really want to go to Africa. Be careful, Christian, that you don't become a social justice warrior that does not honor Jesus. Let me give you an analogy to help you understand. A nuclear explosion is one of the greatest forces we know in this world, is it not? I mean, leveling cities, leveling hundreds of square miles its impact is unimaginable of a huge nuclear device. Do you, do you remember from any of your junior high science classes what happens in a nuclear reaction? The basis of a nuclear reaction is a couple of molecules begin to move really fast. And as they move really fast, they excite the other molecules around them. And the atoms... And that excitement builds rapidly until it becomes something that is astounding. It's actually interesting that in a nuclear reaction, that starting point, that atom has to be split. It has to it has to. Die has to cease being what it was to become the force of change, to impact the, the ones right next to them, and over a million chain events, maybe billions of chain events, you have this impressive mass of force happening miles away. That guys, that's that's how the gospel is supposed to work. Yeah, but But Pastor Trav, you're such an amazing preacher. Oh, thanks. You don't have to say, no, I really mean it. You're such an amazing guy. We really love and appreciate everything you have to say. No, really, I'm I'm good. I don't need your affirmation. Yeah, but we just want you to know that we really feel called to Africa. Good. Now, if you want me to support you going to Africa, you prove to me how great you're gonna be in Africa right here. Don't be empty with your words. Come on, put it into practice now. Get a toilet brush after church and scrub a toilet. Well, that doesn't sound like the kind of church I want to go to. Great! I'm sorry that you're leaving us. I don't want you to. I want you to become more like Jesus. And yes, Jesus asks people to scrub toilets in the kingdom of God. And there are those who follow Jesus with such joy in their life that they joyfully (laughs) scrub toilets. Come on, the whole church should be applauding, saying, amen, praise God. That's the kind of people we want to be. Yeah, but we're not, really. I'm, I'm teasing you, but I'm not. Please understand, what you do right now, right here, is going to be far more important in the eternal impact of what you could do. So pay attention to the most important things first. You will be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the ends of the earth. Nuclear reaction. Hey, Mr. Adam, you need to split. You need to die. You need to become something that you weren't so that the energy that God put in you can excite everything around you and be a chain reaction that changes, that alters the landscape. Let me talk to you for a brief moment as we close today about... The love is love lie. Love is love, man. You know, because love is love. This is okay because love is love. That's okay. That has to be okay because love is love. And hey, and by the way, you didn't know, God is love. Why am I calling it the love is love lie? You see, if the love is love makes anything go, it creates a problem, and that is at some point... It simply ceases to be love anymore. It'd be like saying snow is snow to an Inuit person. You know, the Inuit have like 40, 50 words for snow, right? Love is love. That's like saying, well, snow is snow. Here's the thing about snow. Snow can be a lot of fun. Snow can be playful. Snow can be wonderful. But snow can also kill you. And that's why the Inuit have 40, 50 different words for Snow. Because some snow is good for shelter. Some snow is good for making snow angels. Some snow is good. I I don't even know all the things they know how to do with snow. I'm ignorant in this. Snow can be fun, but snow can kill you. Love can be love until it's not. The problem I have with this, the thing we need to talk about as we close this morning is this. If we have a misconstrued understanding of love, we will have a misconstrued understanding of our Heavenly Father. If we think love is love and it means, I don't know, X to the 32nd power, but it doesn't represent the nature, the radiance, the glory, the perfection of who God is, it skews our ability to understand our Heavenly Father. The lie in love is love comes out in things like, well, God's love is unconditional. Wait a second. Did Pastor Travis just say that the love of God is not unconditional? Okay, this is the point. If they start throwing rocks, just let it happen. Guys, God's love is not unconditional. Now, before you get angry, show me a verse in the Bible where it says God's love is unconditional. You won't find it. His love is everlasting, faithful. I mean, I can think of lots of things the Bible says about his love, but not that it is unconditional. Now, let me help you understand the full picture. Grace is an expression of God's love. And grace is unconditional. Stick with me. It's worth it see, grace is unconditional. In fact, the Bible has the audacity to say, where sin abounds, grace will abound even more. So the worse sinner you are, the greater the grace. But where does this cause us a problem as followers of Jesus? Well, it does a couple of things in causing us a problem. One of which is the rise of moralism in the church as if it were fruit of salvation. Now, the fruit of salvation, uh, we could call it fruit of the Holy Spirit, but but essentially there will be good works that follow conversion. There's good works that follow salvation. And that's a noble thing and a good thing. But I want you to understand that it is not moralism that we pursue. Pastor Amy touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Our goal is not to raise moral children because they're probably going to turn out fairly moral without much more help from us. They have decent friends around them. They have like-minded people. And there is not anything presently happening in their life that's going to drive them away from the grasp of morality that they have. So morality is not the amazing miracle we sometimes make it out to be. This is a problem for us because when we begin to substitute moralism for the salvation experience, we simply are judging people by what we can see on the outside, and we cannot understand whether or not God, the Holy Spirit, is doing something on the inside. Why does this continue to be a problem for us as we move forward? Well, Jesus said it very simply. You'll just be a whitewashed tomb full of goodness and good-lookingness and extremely good-lookingness on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of death and decay. That's, that's what moralism does to a follower of Jesus. Let me just remind you that all your righteous works are as filthy rags. Zing, ouch, that hurts, I know, but it's what the Bible says, so let's just go with it. What are we really after? If, if the love of God is truly not unconditional, but the grace of God is, and it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance, what is it all for? And this is, guys, this is the point of the message today. What it's all for is intimacy with God. And I'm sorry that we haven't talked about intimacy with God as much as we should at this church. We, we demonstrate intimacy with God through worship, through prayer. I think you'll see in the leaders of our church that we have intimate relationships with God, but we haven't really taken the time to say, listen, here's exactly what it's about. The misapplication of love causes us all of these problems. 1 John 3.16, let me just touch this really quick. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for brothers and sisters. And that's specifically Christians, okay? If a sister, um, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Amen. We should do that. That means you're going to give a car away or clothes, or money, or time. His grace, not his love, is without without limits. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounds even more. His grace and kindness are what bring us to repentance. His grace is the expression of his love. But until that point, we are all haters of God. It's hard to think of that. Where's Dustin and Destiny. This little bit, look at their little baby. She's so big eyed and brown and chubby cheeks, and she's so lovely. And in her fallen nature, she's a hater of God. That's really hard to get our head around, isn't it? But that's why God's grace is freely and abundantly poured into her parents. So that they have the opportunity to raise her up in the way she should go. So that when she is old, she won't depart from it. See, that's what the grace of God is for. And the grace of God is designed to do one thing for us. To bring us to repentance. To bring us to a place where we are filled with the life, the hope, the mercy, the essence of Jesus. Why? So that we can have intimacy with God. Morality doesn't help intimacy. Morality can maintain intimacy. That is to say, in a marriage, we contractually obligate ourselves to one another. Pastor Amy can do wrong things to me. She never has in the history of the world done anything wrong to me. But she could. And you see, I have grace for her, so I will let grace abound when she does something wrong. But I'm human, so maybe once or twice, and then I'm going to be, I'm out of patience now. So, so I, I demand change. Let's take it a step further. What if she cheated on me? Would that damage the intimacy of our relationship? Yes, it would. Some of you who have lived through this know how true it is. Those of you who have not should honestly save yourself and believe us that know how devastating it is. That actually made it sound like you actually might have cheated on me, which is not the case. I just want to be clear. Um, See, morality and choosing to do the right things can protect intimacy. That is to say... At the end of it all, we need to understand. Please understand. To experience intimacy with God, there are conditions. And you can't live with a foot in the world. You can't live with a foot in the grave. You can't live with a foot in sin and expect that intimacy with the one who created you is going to flow free and it's going to be wonderful and easy all the time. God's invitation to us One of the examples of which is found in Psalm 46, 10. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. I don't know how many of you were raised in the church and would have the understanding maybe like I had. Be still and know that I am God. Somehow seemed like an invitation to become more holy. Seemed like an invitation to become more spiritual perhaps seemed like an, in, an invitation to find a really good prayer stance when I was praying in front of people. I don't know. Be still and know. It just sounds so good. Be still and know that I'm God. But in the, in the, in the Hebrew word, it's Rafa. And you, you want to know what it means to be still and know that he is God? It means to come up to him and go limp, to collapse, to fall upon To rest, to let go, to allow whatever is consuming you to completely burn down until there is nothing left. That's the invitation to be still. I thought growing up that be still and know that I am God is an invitation to, as I said, holiness, spirituality. And what it really is is an invitation to intimacy. Intimacy with God. Not the best sermon will change our city. Intimacy with God will change your marriage. Intimacy with God, well, of course, will change your relationship with him. Intimacy with God is the reason Jesus came. Intimacy with God is the reason Jesus came. Came. And I want to just lay this out for you today. If you have been following Jesus, but you do not sense intimacy in your life with him, I want to tell you, there's more. You have stopped at a puddle, and the ocean is just over the next hill. Because it's not just about how good we are, how right we can act, how moral we might be, how quick we are to repent. Although all those things can be wonderful. The core of God's heart is that we were created for intimacy with Him. John was the disciple that Jesus loved in, in the scripture and the Gospels where we find that he's the one who puts his head on Jesus' chest, and I imagine they were looking up at the clouds. And I wonder if John said, "Jesus, like, what were you guys thinking when you made the clouds?" I wonder what the conversation was. But intimacy with God looks like John, the beloved. Laying with his head on the chest of Jesus. Or if you can understand it this way, be still and know that I am God is summed up. And when your child comes running to you as their father or mother, crying in pain and frustration, and they throw themselves on you and go limp, that's intimacy with God. You want to know one more thing that's intimacy with God? When that child is screaming and yelling and having a temper tantrum and embarrassing you in front of the whole church? None of you know what we're talking about, of course. You know what intimacy with God looks like for that child? When he just gives up and goes limp. And by the Spirit of God, I want to say some of you are in that exact place this morning. You are on the verge of a tantrum with God. You're so frustrated. You're so worked up. You're so angry and bound up in your spirit. I want you to know, just give up. Just pass out. Just go limp in his arms and begin to experience the intimacy it's actually the only thing that matters. It's the reason Jesus came. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.